you have your Bible there with you, let's turn to the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. And today I'll be reading from verse 5 all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 38. I will not be looking at all those verses, of course, don't, don't panic there. Okay. And I'm reading from the New International Version. Blast from the Past was the version I used when I first came to faith. I haven't used it in about 20 years. Uh, I picked it up this week and I haven't been enjoying it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily encourage you to read it, but it's, it's a very comfortable uh, translation. Let me read it to you. Some of his disciples were remarking, some of his, that is Jesus' disciples, were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when one, when one stone will not be left upon another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked. When shall these things happen? And what shall be the sign that they are about to take place? And he replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming that I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. And they will deliver you to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors and all. All on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words of wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be for the, in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled upon. By the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon and stars. 
on the earth, nation will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you this. Tr- I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that that day will close on you unexpectedly, like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch. And pray that you may be able to escape what is about to happen. And that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill. Or spend the night on the hill that called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Amen. I don't know if you remember, it seems so long ago, that the, the last message I preached was on the, the, widow's, the widow's offering. Really, that Jesus extracted from that text that... We were to give our all to Christ. That there, there had to be a, a, a sense of sacrifice to our faith. It wasn't enough to give from our abundance. But we were to give our all to Christ. Here in this text that we're moving on to. Today I only want to look at verses 5 and 6. The other Gospels, Matthew and Mark. They tell us that Jesus was departing from the temple. And that is as he was leaving his Disciples were having a discourse, a conversation about the glorious temple that was surrounding them, that they were coming out of. And they were distracted by the splendor, the magnificence, the outward glory of such a giant building. And as they were departing and they were pointing out these things and they were commenting to Christ... Jesus then responds to them. Their question comes in two parts. Or no, no, sorry, that's verse 7, excuse me. Um, and then Jesus, of course, responds to their, their pointing out of the temple with the prediction or the comment about the, the coming destruction of the temple. And as I was preparing this message this week, I thought to myself, how very like human beings this is. How very normal it would be for us to be distracted by the outward splendor of a building. Here we have the Son of God, God himself, 
is with them, and yet they're more concerned about the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the splendor of things. Things built by people's hands. Now I know that you all know about Herod's temple. Herod's temple is the third temple. The last in a line. We all know that the original builder of the temple was Solomon. And after Solomon died, the, the nation quickly descended into apostasy. Which resulted in God sending the Babylonians in judgment. And the Babylonians raised the city, destroyed the temple, took all of the, the temple stuff and went to Babylon with it. And there the Israelites, or a remnant of them, remained in Babylon for 70 years until God delivered them and they were able to come back. And then when they got back to Jerusalem, we all have read the, the, the accounts of Nehemiah and Ezra, where they, they rebuild the temple under the instruction, under the, the protection of, of Zerubbabel. The second temple was the temple of Zerubbabel. It's a cool word to say. We know that it was a satisfactory temple. It was not a magnificent and splendid and gorgeous temple. It was alright. Indeed the account is that those who saw it and who still remembered the first temple, they wept when they looked upon it because it just wasn't up to standard. It wasn't up to code. Time goes on and the centuries passed. And Zerubbabel's temple begins to fall into disrepair. There is a lull because the temple itself is not great and glorious, satisfactory. It's still being used. But there's a lull in Israel when it comes to temple worship. It's in a, a time of despondency. There's not a great revival of religion, certainly not of temple religion. And then along comes Herod the Great. Herod the Great, good friends with Julius Caesar. An educated man, a genius by all accounts, military genius. He was an architect, he was a scientist, he was a very, very intelligent, very capable man. One of the things that Herod did for the peoples that he ruled over, he, was, he received what we would call the, the, the fertile crescent from maybe Turkey all the way down through Syria, all the way down to basically Egypt. That, that kind of little bit there. Little. What he would do for the peoples that he ruled over, he would do some magnanimous, gosh that's a hard word for me to say, some wonderful, flowery, expressive gift. And for the Jews, he, he built them their temple. Indeed, he went to the leaders of the Jewish nation and it was, it was his suggestion. And the Jewish leaders were all like, according to the accounts, were all like, well, you don't know. You're an Edomite. Herod wasn't a Jew. Herod was an Edomite. And Edomites are the sworn enemies of the Israelites. They don't like them. And yet, here he comes, he's making a splendid gift to them. Because he's a clever man, and he understands to be able to 
steer and own and manipulate and control of people, you must get a hold of their religion. And once you own their religion, you own them. You can steer them and move them and direct them. You dictate to them. And he knew this. And so the, the, the account is, he, he goes to the rulers of Israel and says, I would like to build you a new temple. And they're all like, oh, no, 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 no. And then he lays out all of the treasures. All of the stonework and all of the gold and all of the silver and all of the, the cedar and all of the beautiful woods. And, and he lays it all out in front of them and says, I'll, I'll, I'll pay for everything. I'll do all the work. I'll provide everything. And all of a sudden they're all like, <laughs> and they accept. Now there is a, a discussion. I don't want to say argument, because you know it's a discussion among scholars. I don't know if scholars have arguments, but it's a discussion. Whether or not Herod leveled the temple of Zerubbabel and built another one, or whether he added to Zerubbabel's temple. I personally, not that I know all the facts, but just because of the things I've read this week, I would agree with the ones that, where he leveled Zerubbabel's temple down to the, the foundations, and then built new. How do we know this? Modern archaeologists, when, when they're digging up, they have examined the giant blocks. I mean, these, some of these blocks are massive, like half the size of this room, that were used by Herod and his builders for the foundations of the new temple. Now, could you imagine having to take a building like this and put a new foundation? You'd have to lift the building up and dig under it and set the big giant blocks, half the size of this building, underneath. What, he had, what Herod did was he took the, the ground level down, all the way down to the bedrock, and dug into the bedrock in order to, to establish a new foundation so that he could build a giant and splendid temple. I'm of the opinion that he basically just got away with the, did away with the old and brought in the new. Herod's temple was splendid. Have you ever been to a mighty cathedral, a medieval cathedral, like York Minster, Westminster? When I was in Spain as a younger man, one of the most emotive, powerful experiences I've ever had as a human being. As I went into a 15th century cathedral in Bilbao in Spain. It was on that side of a hill and it was all covered in skulls and gargoyles and it was snugly built into this wall and it was, and it was a medieval big black door you know, with, with the steel work and iron work and goblin heads and it was mighty looking. And you open the door, and you walked in, and it was like entering into the underworld. Huge building, darkly lit with, with uh, stained glass windows bringing in this light that moved as you moved around. The light moved and gave this, and there had candles lit and incense burning and people chanting. And there was this other world. And as soon as you walked into the building, and you can appreciate I'm a very loud man, you know. I'm a very small man, but very loud. But as soon as you enter into this space, all the sound gets sucked out of you. 
all of a sudden that you're concerned that your footsteps are too loud, that you begin to whisper. Because you're conscious that it's a sacred space. It's a holy, in the worldly sense, atmosphere. Something not of this reality. And you walk into, and again, the... Herod's temple was not a small building. It was huge. It was indeed the size bigger than many medieval cathedrals. It took around 50 years. By the time Jesus is there, we're around the 47th, maybe 50th year, somewhere in that bracket of its construction. It was an ongoing construction. It was always being updated. Even 40 years down the line, when the Romans eventually destroyed the temple, it was still being constructed. They were still adding to the temple at the time of its destruction, final destruction. Jesus is right in the middle of this renaissance, this revival of temple worship. It's in the heyday of the temple. It's bright and it's shiny and it's new, yet it feels ancient. Herod was very clever. He gave the, 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 the temple the feeling of that it was ancient when it was brand new. And here, as they're in this space, it, it brings human feelings it, it, it draws out of us some sort of aspect of worship and awe that we, 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 God must live here. My big Emil, my big son, he was in the south of France um, doing some student thing. And he went and visited some ancient Roman ruins. They're not ruins. It's an ancient Roman temple in the south of France that's been preserved since the time of Rome. It's called the, the Temple of the Gods. And everything in it is constructed to be God-sized. So they're all giant God-sized, small g, you know. So everything, everything's super-sized. There's these stone chairs that are carved out and they're massive. These giant statues and steps. You know, I would look like a toddler next to these steps. He's telling me all these photographs. It's magnificent looking. It's beautiful. The doors are overly giant. It's massive. It's constructed in a way to make you feel small in order that you wonder at the bigness of the Roman gods. It's a trick. To try and to, to make you feel small and that they're somehow big. Herod's temple was constructed in this way. Indeed, one of the walls, I think it was the south-facing wall of the temple, was covered in gold. It was gold-plated. The whole wall was gold-plated. So as the, the sun was setting or the sun was rising, it, it would flash and cause this golden gleam to shine through the, through the Kidron Valley. Beautiful special effects. Herod himself had presented the temple with a sacred gift, the gift of, of a golden um, grapevine, where each bunch of grapes was six foot tall. 
And it wound itself all the way throughout the temple. It wasn't just, I used to think it was just over the entrance. But apparently it wound its way through so that you would see it. It would be hanging golden bunches of grapes all the way through the temple. Glorious and rich. Daniel and I, when we were in the heart cry thing in Barcelona, we went and visited that big cathedral in the middle of Barcelona. I can't remember what it was called. I could not remember for the life of me. I should have looked it up. Exactly that's what it was called. Thank you. The Holy Family. And we went there and it was just, it means amazing. You look there and you could spend the entire day just looking at individual parts of this giant building. We couldn't go in because you have to make appointments to go in because it's so grand and so many people go in. And like people were taking photographs and I remember standing next to one of the little Spanish pastors there. One of the Reformed Baptist pastors. He was looking really un, unimpressed. He was just like, yeah. Hmm. And, he, and, and I said, well, you know, it's a beautiful building. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, it's a beautiful tribute to idolatry. And he just lit up and he went, you're the only one who gets it. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, nah. I think we all get it, brother. But it is a magnificent building. It is built purposely to that scale to invoke some kind of worshipful feelings in you. Some kind of sacred space. Some kind of other world. God must have built this. Human beings couldn't have built this. Indeed, there were marble pillars around the temple in the inner courts. They were all cut from a single piece of marble. 40 feet long. I don't know how much that meters, but it's pretty tall. And they ringed it. They were not segments. You ever seen the, the, the old Greek pillars and they're a segment upon a segment? You see the ruins lying in Turkey or Greece. And you see these segments of a, of a pillar. They were not that way. They were constructed out of sil- single blocks of of marble, luxury and wealth, extravagance, glorious. And again, it would invoke something. You ever go to someone's house? Like you go to my mommy's house, and my mommy has all her royal Dalton china. You know, that my mom, you'd never let your children run around my mom's house. My mom collects rose crystal. You know what rose crystal is? It's crystal that's pink color. And my mom has, my mom collects it. And she has this rose crystal lamp that's like several thousand pounds worth. You know, it's, and it's an antique, of course. And she leaves it on the floor. You know, because it's so big. It's such a big thing. It's beautifully carved, all hand carved. She leaves it on the floor and, and my sons are in the house. I'm like, please, mommy, remove that. Because you're wandering around the house and you're afraid to touch anything. I always remember as a younger man visiting a, a very wealthy couple. And they had a white sofa and white carpet and a white rug. And I was like, I can't be in this room. I go sit in the kitchen. I can't, I can't sit in this room. I'm going to make something dirty. Because you're afraid. And... Herod's temple was designed in such a way as to invoke some kind of human response from you. And the disciples being human, they were naturally 
distracted by the glory, the the, the visible physical appearance of the temple was a distraction to them. I, I think it's perfectly natural. But when we consider the human heart this week again, as I was going through this and going through other stuff, and I was considering the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments as a commentary upon the, the total depravity of man. How we as human beings can never meet the standard of the law. It's a schoolmaster given to us to instruct us upon our depravity. How you and I will never be able to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind and strength. How we will never be able to put God first. It's a challenge to us. It's a reminder to us in our sins, should I say. And as I was considering the disciples and their response, I thought to myself, you know, it is so like man to worship things rather than their creator. They have the creator of all things, all matter, Jesus Christ, before them. They've been sitting, listening to him teach and preach. They've witnessed his miracles. And yet their head is turned by a beautiful building. By the works of man built by man's hands. By something temporary. And I thought that it's just like us. It's just like human beings. I can imagine. I who love beautiful buildings. I mean, I, I, you go to Helsingfors, Helsinki. And you look at all the little, I love looking out for all the little details on the buildings, you know. What does that mean? What the, oh gosh, oh. There's something inside us that longs to be able to have a religion that we can touch and see and control. That, that is worshipful. Look at the Roman Catholic Church. The greatest blasphemy that human beings have ever constructed. There's no greater act of blasphemy. No greater expression of apostasy than the Roman Catholic Church. It is the absolute opposite of true and real faith. Everything that God hates, it is. And yet, human beings love it. It is the single largest Christian organization on the planet throughout history. And it has its golden adorned cathedrals. It's beautifully decorated frescoes and murals. It has its papacy with its golden robes and mighty crowns, its threefold crowns. It has its priests, its cardinals, its bishops with their golden cleansers and censers and whatever else. With their, their magic rings and holy slippers. I saw this week um, an antique program. And one of the antiques that were being sold were cardinal slippers. No, sorry, the Pope slippers. Pope slippers from the 17th century. And because the Pope had worn them, they were holy. Magical and powerful. A dirty pair of slippers. That he maybe had on him for a week. 
you know? And then they were put in a box and left in someone's, some nun's cupboard for 100 years. But they were all gold thread. They were all velvet and satin. They were all frilly. <laughs> in a beautifully hand-carved box. Human beings in our natural state, we love the pomp and the thrill and the, the, the bling of organized religion. And I wish to say that, well, that was only the world and we as the church of God, well, we're, we're immune to that. We're above that. We don't get affected or influenced by that. Our heads are never turned. We're never distracted by the outward. We're never distracted by the need to be seen and heard and respected. But sadly, that's not true. Here in this text, we see the very disciples. And the other Gospels tell us who it was. It was Peter and Andrew, James and John. These guys who were the inner circle of Jesus, their heads are turned. They're distracted. They're taken up with the glory and the splendor of this place. And yet Jesus is able to pull them back. There's a great lesson here. Of the need to guard our own hearts. From the danger of being distracted by the outward. For the desire to be seen. Like remember these guys thought they knew something was going to happen this weekend. That weekend, that coming weekend. They were expecting the the kingdom of God to come down on earth for a millennial kingdom of some sort to happen. The revolution begins this weekend, they were thinking. And they knew themselves to be rulers together with Christ. They were going to be the under rulers, the leaders of the new tribes of Jerusalem or Judah, Israel. And... In part, they thought to themselves, this temple will be ours. With all its glory and goldenness. With all the statues that have been donated. And everyone will know that we're right. And we're the best. And I love Jesus' response. Jesus just is a party pooper. Jesus, there's no, it's like there's no joy in the man at all. No wondering at the glory of this temple. I can just imagine as they're all on the way out and Jesus kind of throws it over his shoulder. Do you see all this? See all this here? Not one stone. And please remember, he's talking about giant blocks. He's not talking about like something that you can hold in your hand. If you've ever seen the size of the blocks that have been used in the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, they're massive. They're huge. And that was just one wall, foundation wall underneath. Those are just the, the small blocks that no one was ever supposed to see. And they're massive. They're giant. We're talking about blocks so big. You tennis ball to try and reach the top. And Jesus says, not one of them will be left standing upon another. Jesus knew. Again, as I was researching this this week, and 
One of the things that struck me was that this isn't Jesus predicting the future. This is Jesus announcing the future. He isn't kind of looking through eternity, uh, through, through time and seeing something that might happen. No, he's announcing the judgment that has been already prescribed. This will happen. Not that it could happen or it might happen. If Israel doesn't repent, this judgment will come upon it. No, this temple is destined for destruction. Jesus knew. He knew. He, he, I can imagine wasn't even affected. Jesus wasn't even affected. Didn't even see the glory. Didn't see the splendor. Wasn't moved at all by the majesty of Herod's temple. See, Jesus wasn't so concerned with the glory of the, of the earthly temple. He wasn't so taken up with the, the splendor and the majesty of things that were made by the hands of men. Christ had his eyes, his attention, firmly focused on heavenly things. On the glory that which was to come. On the temple that, is to, that was him. Jesus is the living temple. Remember he said, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up again. Talking not of the building but of himself. Jesus knew that the building was just an earthly thing. And that it would pass away. Again, you all know that I love history. I love archaeology. I watch in my spare time archaeological TV programs because I am that nerdy. Find them on, on YouTube. One of the things I love is when they discover Roman buildings in the United Kingdom. Roman buildings. The, 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 the ruins of Romans. You know, the, a field. Just a normal, you look at it and you think it's just a field. And people have been growing crops in it for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, some fella goes out with a, an x-ray machine and walks along the field and takes a picture of the underground. And all of a sudden, they, they come with a, a radar picture of the ground. And there under the ground, there's a foundation. And they start digging it up. And all of a sudden, there's beautiful mosaic floors that have been there for 2,000 years and no one has known. And they uncover these walls that are, are, really, are at least a meter thick, sometimes a meter and a half thick, meaning that the building would have been a two or three story building. And some of the buildings from the Roman time in Great Britain that they found have been massive, like, like the size of Prisma in, in town. Huge buildings, two, three stories high. And yet today there's nothing left of them except the ruins that are under the ground. You know, we look at things with a, an eye that sees the permanency. As it is today, so it has always been, so it will always be. Yet Jesus here, he looks upon the, the falsehood of the organized religion of his day and he is not moved by it. He's not moved by the splendor of the constructions of men, nor the religion of men. His heart, his mind, his focus is firmly fixed upon the glory that is to come. The church of God. 
It's a great lesson for us not to be earthly minded and to seek earthly success. Because all that success will pass away. Jesus says later in the text, doesn't he? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall stand forever. Jesus was not distracted by the glory of Herod's temple. Indeed, he announces the judgment upon it. And he knew, I think that's the great thing, he knew of the fate that was to come. And that should give you and I such encouragement. This world and all that's in it will pass away. Corona will pass away. The Lutheran Church of Finland will pass away. Reformed Baptist faith will pass away. Biblical faith will not pass away. All the forms and structures and histories of men will pass away. The Roman Catholic Church with all of its splendor, with all of its apostasy and blasphemy will pass away. And nothing will be left and nothing will be remembered. We must take confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his plans and his purposes. We must not become so earthly minded that we desire to build for ourselves great monuments of faith. We must not emulate or copy or take after the, the... The churches of this world. The faiths of this world. We should not hunger and thirst after splendor and recognition. And to be famous that our names might live forever through the annals of time. We must take after our saviour. Which building did Jesus leave behind? Which great monument did Jesus leave behind? Where are the great artifacts? Where are the slippers of Jesus? And I think if you ask the Roman Catholics, they probably have them. Nothing. What did he leave behind? The church. Faith. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not even the gates of hell shall prevail against them. Beloved, it's easy for us to become distracted by worldly and earthly things. Indeed, Jesus later on in this discourse, this, this Olivet conversation, he warns his disciples about becoming disheartened, about losing faith, about giving in to the temptation to lean on other things. Let us not be Distracted by the world and its methods and its means. Let us keep our focus upon Christ, upon Jesus. Let us emulate him. Let us focus upon him. Let us be faithful to him. Let us live our lives the way he lived his life. The way he demonstrates to us that true believers are to live. Again, not taken up by the things of this world, whether they be physical or educational, philosophical. Our focus should be upon Jesus. 
Jesus tells us that the earthly temple, Herod's temple, the third temple of three, would be destroyed. And that nothing would be left. And we know that that was true. We know that that, was, that actually really happened. 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus utters these words, the Romans come in their wildness after yet another rebellion of, of, of Israel. And the Romans destroy the temple. They build giant bulwarks, scaffoldings around the temple. And they covered it with, with um, trees, not trees, we call them lumber. And they burnt it down. And the heat was so great that the stones, those great stones, that, those marble constructions crumbled and turned to dust. And then the Romans sifted through the rubble, searching for the gold. They plundered even the ruins. And then they leveled it and then they salted it so that nothing would ever grow there. As a demonstration to what happens to those who rebel against Rome. When the destruction came, the destruction came and it was complete. Another great lesson for us to, to learn is as Christ prophesied or announced the judgment upon the temple, judgment will one day come upon this world. It is inescapable and it will be final. The judgment of the temple should awaken in us a great fear. For we know that the judgment that is to come is inescapable. And it is certain. If God moved in such a way against his own people who refused them, how much more against the, the, the world, the creation? Beloved, judgment is certain. Christ warns his disciples and we now, the church of God, must warn the world around us. Christian and non-Christian, we must warn them alike. I find it amazing to think, and in my discussions with Christians, which most Christians now don't want to discuss anything with me, I've just discovered. Because they, they want to live in ignorance. They no longer believe in heaven or in hell. It's my best life now. Eternity has no consequences. They, they have no understanding of what the afterlife looks like. And all they want is what they have now. And they live for material possessions. They live for what they can get now. Their God, their God has become their belly. Or their belly has become their God. Beloved, we must preach the gospel all the more bravely, boldly, freely to the unbeliever, but also to the believer. We must call them to obedience. We must call them to faithfulness. We must demonstrate that there is a judgment coming. Now we can either be part of the solution, again calling unbelievers to faith, demonstrating the love of God here in this world, strengthening and caring and loving one another, or we can be among those who, who one day will hear that voice, that beautiful, beloved voice of our loving Savior, saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I did not know you. 
Those who think they're believers but are not. Outwardly resemble but inwardly are empty. Beloved, here we see the disciples being distracted by outward things. Their heads turned aside. Looking at the glories of this world. Again, I can imagine there was a little bit of biyar. Is that the word in Swedish? A little bit looking at what the temple had. and The splendor of the high priests and the chief priests. And the respect that they're given. And the wealth that they're wearing. The bling. And I can imagine the disciples kind of looking going... I wouldn't mind a bit of that. At those big golden grapes hanging randomly throughout the temple. I said, I wouldn't mind a bit of I want my office just around the corner there. We must guard our hearts. We must not seek to emulate the religion of the world. We must be heavenly minded. Our goal is not to have our best lives here now. Our goal is to enter eternity and to the glory that is to come. We know that this life and all that's in it is just passing away. Well, it's for a brief season, but the life that is to come is for eternity. It's endless. Endless. And yet, how we live our lives here on earth today affects how we live in an eternity and in, in, in an endless eternity. Let us live our lives profitably, focused upon the glory of the Lord, not wanting to be like the religions of this world with all their pomp and glory and worldly respect. Let us seek to be Christ-like. Let us seek to be faithful. Let us seek to be those who Desire a heavenly crown. Those who desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Our heavenly Father, we come before you. Lord, we we realize, we know that far too often we are distracted by worldly things. Either in the faith, Lord, or just in our lives. How, Lord, we desire, Lord, so much more than we have. Father, I know that success is not a sin, but putting other things more than you is, Lord. Uh, the sin of Demas, the loving the world too much. Please, Heavenly Father, help us to have biblical perspective, to have biblical priorities, Lord. Oh, Lord Jesus, please be the center and the focus of our lives that we would wonder at you in your glory, that we would have our heads turned by you. The Lord, we would be fascinated by you. Oh Lord, help us deepen our understanding and our walk. Lord, we confess that we are all too shallow in our faith. Oh Lord, help us to love you all the more. Lord, we thank you that you have not given up on us, nor have you given in. We thank you, Lord, that you are actively in our lives. Oh, Lord, thank you. Lord, we pray this for your glory and your glory alone in Jesus' precious name. Amen.